Welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. And our today's episode will be devoted to mediation, mediation with a purpose, mediation with passion, mediation with heart. And uh, today with me, uh, we have Joe Kalowski, uh, who is a mediator by passion, who does it um, uh, with lots of uh, lots of love, lots of uh, uh, lots of passion, uh, and has been doing it for the last thirty years or so, and even more. Yeah, Joe, would you like to uh, would you like to correct me on your intro? I think you have uh, lots of experience, but uh, tell please tell our share with our uh, listeners uh, uh, where it comes from. Look, I, I'm, I think that as the first person in my family to speak English well, my family was German-speaking, I think I was always the mediator. I was always the translator of meaning from one person in the family to the wider world. And um, when I discovered mediation, probably in, my, probably in my 40s, sometime in my 40s, I suddenly realized that there was a uh, there was a, a kind of a zest for the idea that a person in the middle is a translator of one person's reality to another person's reality, both of whom have what you might describe as right on their side. The one who says something is offensive has found it offensive. The one who says he didn't intend to offend didn't intend to offend so that it's really a question of translating them to one another. So it started as a language issue, and I've always been passionate about language in disputing and dispute resolution, in conflict resolution, but I'm now absolutely persuaded looking back that it's the, it's the basis of my interest in mediation. Yes, uh, thank you, uh, thank you so much, Joe, for this uh, for this uh, great background. Uh, uh, we are, we already already started talking between the lines um, um, why we need mediators, right? You mentioned you emphasized the, the, the translation um, uh, translation part of it. Yeah, are there any other any other reasons why mediators are are necessary? So we know we know that uh, that they appear in the or emerge um, in the in the context of conflict, right? Uh, what is the role of mediator? How do you perceive it? I think the role of the mediator is to be very convinced that an answer to the particular issues that have brought people into confrontation with one another, if not outright conflict, lies with the people themselves, that there, that there are answers, probably multiple answers already there, but that some of the constraints of perhaps a, a litigation framework have prevented those from emerging. And that's not to say that I don't respect the litigation framework. Um, I used to be jokingly referred to as the lawyer's non-lawyer because I used to start my mediation training workshops, and I did training workshops for something like 30 years. I used to say, imagine if Eddie Marbo's case had been mediated. Eddie Marbo is the Aboriginal man now dead who brought the litigation that gave us the Native Title Tribunal, where he claimed native title over his lands and waters. And the High Court of Australia found in 1993 that native title was not extinguished by the arrival of the British. And today is a day we're having a, we're having a national public holiday to celebrate the life of Queen Elizabeth. And there are a lot of people saying, should we be celebrating this given 
what colonization did to Australia, and that's, of course, another story. But Eddie Mabo said, we never ceded sovereignty. We were a sovereign people. And our rights to our lands and waters have never been extinguished. And the High Court found for him. So if, and he was offered mediation many times. If he had agreed to mediate, we would not have a native title process in Australia. We would not have a recognition that the lands and waters of Aboriginal people were never ceded. So, you know, it's a kind of a, a two-edged sword, isn't it? That mediation, we need to be very careful about mediation not becoming a panacea. Mm. Mediation is enormously valuable, but it isn't all there is. It takes place alongside other very important processes. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just something I've, I've always believed. Look, I was a member of two tribunals, one of them being the Native Title Tribunal. So I saw at first hand what it is for people to stand in front of a tribunal or a court and to get the quality of justice that they feel they're entitled to and that if they step away from that as an act of will to try to settle aspects of their case by negotiation or by mediation, that's wonderful. But whether it should be imposed is another question entirely. Mm. Yes. Um, so that it, it seems that uh, it seems that mediation uh, mediation emerges in the presence of uh, of deeply rooted conflicts. Yes, and these conflicts can emerge on uh, various various levels, various platforms. Uh, what were the the most common types of uh, conflicts that you were uh, called up uh, to mediating? Yes. Uh, Uh, if you could give us a rough, I know you've mediated over uh, 200 cases, probably, and uh, I'm sure that they were very diverse. But if you could, you know, maybe put them into, try to put them into buckets, what kind of conflicts were they? Probably because it began, my mediation career as a formal mediator began when I was um, uh, uh, employed by the Anti-Discrimination Board of New South Wales, government entity, and I was head of community relations. And we used to take individual complaints. And one day I said to my colleagues, "We're these are Pyrrhic victories. We're settling a complaint between one person and another when there's a class of persons lying behind this matter who need the same access. So we really need to do something about groups and we need to do something about institutional attitudes to particular aspects of, of complaints. So for that reason, a great many of the matters that I did until I joined the Native Title Tribunal, I think, were about, uh, were, were, took place uh, uh, where people were working. They were complaints around uh, discrimination or access to goods and services and so on. So that was very much... Uh, where I began, and 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 I was comfortable there. I did a lot of work in hospitals and around the idea of uh, rights to you know health and so on, and quite a few uh, scientific-based complaints. I always say that managers and scientists speak an entirely different form of English, and could never understand one another. So that when there was a dispute between a manager and and a scientific officer, I knew that it would be on for young and old, as we say in Australia. And also things like um, 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 uh, intellectual property, where someone had been the associate um, or had been supervised by a, an academic doing a PhD, 
and who then utilised some of the research in a book. And the PhD supervisor turned up and said, this is my research, you have no right to use it. And neither of them could afford to take the other to court. So there were always very, very interesting issues. And very often they were interlocked with a, with a personal animosity. And uh, for me, it's this aspect of the personal that I find most interesting, I think. I've been listening carefully to all these classes that you've mentioned, and uh, it seems that uh, uh, your job has been to reconcile irreconcilable, yeah? you know, deep rights, deep, uh, you know, personal uh, convictions and beliefs with very often commercial interests. Yes? Uh, how, how, and, how did you do this? But where there are commercial interests, they aren't irrelevant. The, uh, sometimes people say, look, let's put, you know, and there are certain models of mediation that say, let's put all that to one side. Well, you can't. If I'm here to talk about the $50,000 or the $50 million that I'm owed, I'm not going to be happy to have that put to one side. But I always say, Remy, that you don't get to a solution around the money by talking about the money. And that's my advice to mediators. If you think you will get to talk to reconcile a dispute over 50,000 or 50 million or 5 million by only talking about money and telling people that how they feel about each other is irrelevant, you are barking up the wrong tree. Because what prevents them from settling is, is what we have to get out of the way. Now, I told you about my very famous cow in the road theory that the mediator is the person who turns up on the side of the road when two people have been driving along very happily in their car, everything's going smoothly with the car, and they hit a dead cow on the road. And until and unless the dead cow is pulled off the road, they can't motor on. And I think the mediator is the third pair of hands that comes and helps pull the cow off the road. I'm interested in the obstacle. What stops you from settling? Not that I asked that question, but I want to find that out because they know what will settle it. If I paid you X and you apologized for Y, it'd all be over. I want to know why they aren't doing that, why they haven't done that. And, and what is the reason, the, Joe? What is the, the reason? reason is, well, Remy, people always say it's the lawyers. They get in the way. My experience of lawyers is they've been extremely helpful. I hate to see parties... Um, turn up in mediation without their lawyers because certainly in Australia where the lawyers are well-trained, they're very valuable because they'll say to the party, look, hang on, hang on, just shh. You're about to hear something very useful. You know, just shut up and listen is really what they're saying to their client. And then I often say to parties, I can't know because I've only met you today or during our preliminaries. But you know if you've heard something today that you've never heard before. Have you heard something new? And does that something new change anything for you? Go away and think about it. That's my idea of a private session, a reflection time. It's not a punishment for not starting to talk about the money. I've seen people say, well, we've spent two hours here, you know, haven't talked about the money yet. Good, don't talk about the money. The money will turn up anyway. Let's talk about what has prevented them from getting to talking about the money. Sometimes it's because they've only talked about the money. They haven't talked about how offended they were when the bank limited their line of credit without 
consultation. So once the bank says, look, perhaps we should have let you know, and the other side can say, perhaps, are you joking? Perhaps it was my line of credit, it's my reputation. So the big R, you know, relationship, reputation, those are the things that get in the way. And I love mediation from my perspective because it allows me to demonstrate to people what I call their own expertise. I locate them in their expertise. They know this stuff. They just don't know how to express it. And Remy, I want to say one other thing. I once had a wonderful colleague who came from a Latin American country and she spent a lot of time in Australia and she said to me one day, you know, it's fascinating. Australians have emotions. They just don't have a vocabulary for them. Now, I think a lot of people don't have a vocabulary for conflict because it's associated with stuff in the family that was painful or difficult. They don't have the words to put it in and they, they are ashamed to reveal themselves as feeling people. And I've had the experience of seeing men in mediations, in commercial mediations, say, I've said, well, what happened when that took place? And they'll say, well, you can just imagine I, you know, and they make this roiling motion. And I say, that's how you felt, is it? And they say, sure, wouldn't you? And they're making this gesture. And I say, well, how did you feel? And they said, well, I just told you. And I said, no, 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 you demonstrated to me. How did it actually feel? And they can't name it. They can't say I was deeply disappointed. I was absolutely shocked. I was horrified that a former partner could treat me this way when I've been a member of this law firm for 25 years. I mean, I've done... I've mediated disputes where a partner in a law firm is dismissed because he's turned 70 or turned 65 and not brought in enough money in the last three years. Mm. And that person turns up talking to his partners or her partners, usually it's a man, saying, I was making money for this, this firm when you were in short pants. And that's what they want to talk about how hurt they are, but they don't use the word. Mm -hmm. So it seems... You are consigning me to the dustbin of this firm when I built it. And until they say that, there is no settlement. Yes, that's super interesting, Joe, because it seems to me that uh, the beauty and the magic of your job is to uh, teach people how to speak about what's important to them. Is, uh, would that be accurate? I think that is. I think that's to to acknowledge it when it's unsaid and to allow space and to create a, an atmosphere that's conducive to them saying, well, to be totally frank with you, I was shocked and hurt when I discovered that I was not to be a consultant to the firm anymore. Shocked and hurt. Mm -hmm. And so once the others hear that, they can actually respond to it. Yes, yes. They don't have to apologize. They that's just super, have to respond. respond. Yeah, that's super interesting, uh, Joe, because um, now I wonder, uh, because in the present, you know, when there's this dead cow 
in the role, right? So, yeah. so apparently, apparently, the easiest thing would be just to say, "Hey, um, fellow uh, passenger, hey, fellow driver, why don't you grab the one leg? I grab the other, and we just pull this cow off the road, right?" I mean, but they may the not be strong enough. They may not be strong enough. That's, uh, or they might not they even want to talk. Yes, exactly. And I was just wondering, you know, what is the what is, how do you do this? What is your secret sauce? Why do these people start talking when you are there? Because I think I go in there with a feeling that they already know the answer. And I feel that very genuinely. And I also feel that I'm there as a servant, as their servant, not as their master. I lend myself to them. I lend my my. Um, I lend them my insights. I say to them, look, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that one of the things that's got in the way here, and I think about it getting in the way because I often think about the cow. I say to them, look, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that's got in the way is X. It's the line of credit. It's the shock over the change to uh, the status of this person or whatever it is. And I will, I don't do this all the time, but that's the sort of thing that will come out. And I often say, correct me if I'm wrong, because people have corrected me and said, no, 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 you're quite wrong. It goes back much further than that. Because 15 years ago, they tried the same trick on me. And I forgave them then, but I'm not forgiving them this time. Mm -hmm. So what comes out are very strong feelings. And, you know, people often say in commercial matters, there are no strong feelings. Go and sit in a court. I mean, one of my roles has been for a long time to coach judges who are struggling. And they accept me as a coach because I'm not a lawyer. So I can't embarrass them. I can't say a good lawyer would always do this or a good judge would always do that because what do I know? I just say to them, I was sitting there like the litigant and my sensation was that I didn't know what was going on. It felt chaotic to me. And they say, really? Chaotic? I thought it was a very smooth morning and so on. So I sort of give feedback. So one of the things that I feel I bring is placing myself where each of them might be at given moments. And I can step there by saying, it seems to me that what you've just said to Remy is that you were surprised and somewhat um, shocked by the fact that he fired you by text message. Have I got that right? And Remy might say, no, 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 I sent him a letter. Did he only get my text? Because I did send a letter. Well, that might clarify the whole thing straight away. But certainly where there's a large sum of money involved or where, the, where we're going to get to a large sum of money, they're often so angry and they're often so worried about their own capacity to negotiate that they simply express frustration and anger or they let the lawyer do it for them. And the lawyer, Remy, becomes in some instances a negative advocate. You know the, the, the theory around negative advocacy. They don't become someone who is helping the process. They're really saying, look how upset she is. You want to do this to her again? Go right ahead. I'm here this time. Well, that's not helpful. This is not another sword. This is another pair of hands. So, you know, certainly I think that, it, that the usefulness of a mediator is to encourage the parties to see themselves as negotiators. 
So when they say to me, Remy, I'd like to make an offer. You know, well, they're in private rooms. They're in separate rooms. I often do separate caucuses. I always do separate caucuses, invariably, just to see how we're going. And one of them will say, look, I've heard him this morning. He's very hurt. I think we should up our offer from 50 to 100. Whatever it is, 1,000 million. You know, it's not millions. I haven't done a $100 million matter. Colleagues of mine have, but I haven't. And I said, and they, so they say, well, go on, off you go. And I say, why do you think that offer would be better coming from me? And they say, I'm sorry, what are you asking me? And I say, well, I'm asking you about your strategy. You plainly think that the offer would be better received if I gave it. And they say, well, what alternatives are there? And I said, well, what if you made that offer? How would they feel if you made it? In other words, because they're not negotiators, they don't think strategically at all. And I'm, people I'm, have actually said to me, isn't that how mediation is played? We make an offer to you and you run in like a dog eater with the morning newspaper and drop it, you know, drop it on the doorstep of the other person and say, here's your newspaper. Now, what do you do when there's no offer? Do you go into the other room and say they've, they've suggested to me that you can whistle? They're never going to up their offer. Or do you say, I haven't really the matter hasn't been advanced very far. Do you lie? Well, I've, I'd prefer to lie and say we haven't really got much further than we were at together. Where do you feel we should go now? And so on. I do ask them. But when people ask me to carry a message, I say, why me? Because I want to remind them that they're negotiators. And very often they'll say, you're right, I think he wants to hear me step down and say, we should have offered you 100 straight away. We're sorry. We didn't offer you 100. We're offering you 100 today. And I'm listening to I'm going to walk out of here, but you're not. Yes. Yes, Joe. Um, when I'm listening to, uh, to this, uh, I could listen, by the way, for hours and probably our listeners as well. Um, some of them, let me, let me blend it in. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there's so much passion in what you're saying, uh, so much passion in the, in what you're doing. Yes, uh, that I'm thinking. You know, when I contrast it to with uh, many modern mediators, uh, um, I have a feeling that uh, you know this. What you mentioned uh, mentioned earlier. Yes, uh, that many perceive mediation as a panacea, as a deal making sort of uh, exercise. Yes, uh, and I, when I contrast it when, with to make a deal yeah, sure that's that's true that's true but uh, when i contrast it with what i'm hearing uh, from you i hear a lot of uh, you know a lot of passion about uh, you know uh, helping people get along with each other better yeah? uh, and this is yes and this is something which i would like to talk to you about the purpose driven mediation yes uh, how did you become not a mediator but a purpose driven mediator Look, I think a long time ago, some wonderful trainer, and I've done lots of training programs, said to me, said the wonderful line that purpose drives practice. And I think that purpose does drive practice. I'm in that room to demonstrate to people that not only can they resolve this matter, they could, in fact, if they get this right, resolve any future matters that emerge in their joint venture. 
because they now have the capacity to do it. I think it's a capacity building exercise. I'm demonstrating to them that they can do it because after all, our children negotiate with us. Our babies negotiate with us. You know, my three-year-old grandchild once said to me, you said we could only read one story tonight. And I said, yes, that's right. And she said, good, read that one again. <laughs> now, you know, honestly, that's fantastic negotiation. Everybody negotiates. Everyone knows how to negotiate. But if you reveal to them, you're not teaching them to negotiate. You're revealing to them that you can negotiate. You know what this is, Remy? This is, this is um, Michelangelo saying that he didn't sculpt figures. He liberated them from the block. He just chipped away the bits that were holding them in the block. I think they can negotiate. They just don't know that they know how to do it. And if they know they know how to do it, we have a better world. I think we have a, a more peaceful business life. I think we have a more peaceful personal life. And I think that people undersell themselves as negotiators. Yes, and this is a very important, uh, very important um, effect of uh, negotiation and mediation skills. Yes, that they, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, they have these sort of economic effects, which we very often focus on, but they are there also to improve the quality of our lives. Yeah. And uh, speaking of younger generations, uh, Joe, I was thinking about, uh, you know, with uh, with the wealth of experience that you've uh, uh, that you've uh, accumulated over over those. Uh, hundreds of uh, mediation cases that you have gone through yeah? um if you were when you speak to younger mediators yes, what kind of advice uh, do you give them i i start by reminding them to trust the process i think the various processes of mediation and it doesn't have to be a set model but that mediation creates a safe framework a context in which people can start to explore things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do except on paper. So certainly I say to younger mediators that it's very important in the beginning to read widely and not just to think about mediation itself, but to think about yourself and what you bring into the room. And I often say to people, you know, do you raise or lower the temperature in the room? Are you aware? And I know that I once went to a friend's chemical laboratory. He, he makes veterinary chemicals. And before I walked in, they put me in a suit with a hat and covered my shoes with plastic shoes and gave me a, temp a thermometer and said, put it under your arm and tell me what your body temperature is. And I said, why on earth am I doing that? And they said, we have to adjust the room your temperature that you will walk in because everything is in petri dishes now why we mediators don't know what we walk into the room are we walking something into that room that ought not to be there are we looking at ourselves instead of always looking at the parties when there's an impasse and i watch people all the time i watch judges i watch mediators i i coach mediators i coach judges Whenever there's an impasse, nine times out of ten, it's the person leading the process that has created the impasse, not the parties. Impasse is about a failure on the part of the leader. I think it's an act of leadership. 
and it's leadership where you are a servant of the parties. You know, you go where they, you follow where they go, but you shed light as they do. And some of the time you hold up a light and say, let's try walking this path. Let's try walking that path. So you're lighting a way, but they're the ones who walk it. And I think mediators need to realize that it's more than deal-making. Deal-making is terrific, but it will not serve, it will not solve the things that are really before us. It will not solve Russia-Ukraine. It will not solve the Arab-Israeli dispute. It will not resolve native title in Australia if it's just a deal. If Eddie Mabo had accepted however many millions of dollars for the Merriam Islands, we would not be where we are today. Deal-making is one aspect, but it's not all there is. And I've written a paper on mediation being more than mere deal-making, and it's not made me very popular with commercial mediators. But I've also been a commercial mediator. It's just that it interests me less than native title and land matters. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that, um, that we are, and I would say to young mediators, that we represent a set of possibilities that we walk into the room that were not there before we walked in. We have to be persuaded by the fact, not that we are so clever, but that we are insightful and that we're listening in such a way that we can point out to people where the pitfalls are or have been. Has this been, has this, and I often say to people, has this been a sticking point for you? And if they say yes, I say, can we just get it up? Can we put it up as one of the issues to return to, because it may be a sticking point again. So it's about identifying what's got in the way and what we could deal with today that would get it out of the way, because there are often interests not that got people into dispute, but that prevent them from letting go of the dispute. And I'm interested in those interests. Mm -hmm. I think you it's... Know, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, I just—I was just going to say that we, we're very big on interests. What are his interests? What are her interests? And, you know, we learn to make lists of those. But I want to know what interests they have in hanging on. I mean, I've met people in families in negotiation who will tell me that they can't sit down with their brother because they had a dispute 25 years ago. And I say, about what? And they say, I can't remember but they're still in dispute. Mm -hmm. So there's some interest that keeps them from resolving. And that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> I don't even, they may not even remember what happened 25 years ago. Yes. Uh, but they're stuck now. That's true. That's true. Um, I was wondering, Joe, <clears throat> um, because to me, you come across as a super authentic, passion, genuinely passionate uh, person. And uh, I can imagine that even, uh, even uh, while facing um, an intense uh, conflict uh, with someone else, I could imagine that you, that you beam this sort of trustworthiness uh, by who you are. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, I, I was wondering as, as, as we spoke today, this is going to be a difficult question. What made you into to, 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 to a person who you are today? I know the trivial answer is everything, right? But this is probably uh, the least interesting answer that our listeners want to hear. Yeah? I would have to say to you that it was Martin Buber. 
my father was very, very philosophical. And one of the things he used to quote, and he quoted a lot of his favorites, but one of the statements of Martin Buber, which he loved, and which of course was written in German, was that you come to the other as yourself. And that you can only engage with someone else if you are there as you are and not in some counterfeit role. I mean, I'm a big crier. I cry very easily. When I was in Germany recently and the press reported on the event which I told you about, um, I had to say that um, I've had to write my speech, sonst weine ich. You know, otherwise I just cry. And I don't cry in mediation. I cry afterwards when I talk about it. So it's very good, it's very good exercise for me to come in and be and be more collected than I am when I'm talking to you now. But still to let that feeling come to me that I'm there for them. And Certainly, I was brought up that way. You know, I think it's very much a question of upbringing. You know, it's very interesting. I mean, I see it in my own little grandchildren. My six-year-old daughter the other day was telling my daughter, my six-year-old granddaughter was telling her mother a story that was funny, and she started to laugh, and she laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and couldn't finish the story. And when she finished, her mummy said, now tell me the story, and the six-year-old said, isn't it funny how the emotions come before the facts, before the story? So she's already got it. And I think along the way we lose it. We know that the emotions come before the story, but we bury them. And I think if people are allowed, and I'm not talking about crying and shouting, but if people are allowed to say, you really, really offended me when this happened, I couldn't believe that a partner in business would do this to me. Now, that's a very serious, very somber comment. It's a very important comment, and it allows the other one to say, I had no idea you would take it that way. I mean, that's a quasi-apology. But it's a very valuable, um, it's a very valuable acknowledgement. I've also written extensively on the power of acknowledgement. And, you know, Remy, a few years ago, I was involved in the um, Defence Abuse Task Force where thousands of Australians who'd been in the armed forces came forward and talked about sexual and other abuse. And I had to set up the early uh, disputing systems and then train the first people in the armed forces who were going to be the listener to the complainants. And they were all saying, you know, we don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, that's very good, because when you go into the room and you're really listening to this other person, the words will just come out of you. And in one instance, a young man said, this is what happened to me. And the person he was speaking to was the head of Air Force, and the head of Air Force said to him, do you want to pursue the person who did this to you? And he said, no. I want to pursue my senior officer to whom I went and complained when I was 22 years old who told me to man up. And the head of Air Force said to him, good heavens, he said, we let you down. Mm -hmm. Magic.
And yes. the other one said, I've been waiting for those words for 40 years. 30 years. But it was because he was really listening that he was able to say, oh, my God, we let you down. We. Not he. We. We, the armed forces. We, the people who should have looked after you when you were a young and vulnerable man. And, you know, I have to say that in Australia and no doubt in other countries, young men went to sea at 14 and they were on a boat for six months with men who were rapists. So their lives were hell. And one of them actually said, I don't remember the face of the rapist. I remember the face of my senior officer who told me to man up. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's happened to all of us. You get over it. Well, sometimes you don't. And so having been involved in that retaught me about the whole question of trauma and about the whole question of what people are, what you don't see in them. You don't see the suffering. You don't see the, the honest person who's somehow lost their way. You don't see the partner in a law firm who's given his all and feels that it hasn't been recognised. Because mostly it's not on show. And they don't have to act it out. But they have to be able to give it voice. And I think it's that idea of voice. There's another great academic in this field, Tony Ward, who's written about who's written the good lives model. And he talks about voice, validation, and voluntariness, the three Vs. And very often people want to be validated. They want to say it in their own words. And they want not to be constrained to do anything that they don't want to do. And for me, those are also sort of guiding principles. They're sort of sitting there in the back of my head. And I think if you mediate with that in mind, people become able to negotiate. I've had people actually say to me, look, will you leave us for half an hour? I think I can do this. Yes. Which I think is wonderful. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, exactly. Joe, I have to, I have to, I have to show this one uh, to you uh, from Barney. Uh, we were talking about uh, your qualities as mediators, what mediators need, and um, uh, what we need to uh, come across as as uh, as trustworthy. And uh, everything that you said, I can absolutely, absolutely sign with both of my hands uh, underneath Barney's st statement. Uh, you are very genuine in whatever you do. In the way you speak about about your work, and that makes you very powerful. I must admit I that makes the, you very it's powerful. Only, it, it's the only sort of power we have. But I love this phrase of Martin Buber's. I mean, I love other uh, statements of his as well. And Barney knows that I've borrowed his. Um, I haven't borrowed. I've stolen his Bertrand Russell quote because my father left us a Bertrand Russell quote in his will. So mm. you know. So let me let me show you another one uh, uh, because we're slowly coming to an end. I have one more last uh, uh, one last one more last question, <laughs> um, and that is um, speaking about inspiration. Yes, um, I wanted to make sure to have you on our um, on our on our podcast uh, because I strongly believe I agree with Lars. You are very a very inspiring person, yeah? and I can imagine that uh, many mediators who are watching right now are learning a lot. Uh, from your experience uh, um, but my but my question is uh, uh, is about uh, um, mediators or negotiators that have inspired you yeah um, people where you would who you would ascribe 
greatness to or mastery to in, uh, in what they are doing. I mean, for many of us, you uh, have become a source of inspiration. That's uh, That's <laughs> and who was it for you? Look, it was there was a wonderful man, probably two, and and some fabulous women. But I'm thinking of John Atkinson, who's now no longer with us, who confronted um, workplace, um, what shall I say, breaches on a level that we had not even imagined. And he took them on and ended up bringing the whole set of issues with me as his kind of riding shotgun to him. I think I, at the time I was 32. He took that into the Industrial Commission and had workplace rights seen as an industrial issue. So he, together, we presented it to the Industrial Commission of New South Wales, the case of these workers on night shift on, for state rail. And he did that by simply by sheer force of will. And he was a very great, a very great Christian. I used to call him Christianity on wheels. He'd been a, a Wesleyan minister in Tonga. And he was just, his Christianity was absolutely, uh, it, 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 it solidified around him. He used to carry a black pen, Remy. And at the time, there was a bumper sticker that people had on their cars that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And he would cross out the EN and make it into Christians aren't perfect, just forgiving. And he was just, he was incorrigible and fabulous. I would have to also mention people like Presley Baxendale in England, Jane Andrew Arthur, and my great colleague in Australia, Alan Ogg, who's the bravest mediator that I know who will do extraordinary things. He was invited to mediate between two Aboriginal families where some, where the, the son of one married to the daughter of another had actually murdered his wife. And there was a debate about where the body would be buried. Would she be buried in this country or in this country? And I mean country in Aboriginal terms. And Alan wasn't getting anywhere, he says. I wasn't there. But he brought in a chair and he said, if she was here, what would she say? I mean, it's unbelievable. And after that was resolved, the families invited him to the funeral. Because re in real terms, they could only have the funeral because he helped to bring it about. So I think people like that. And he was also on the Defence Abuse Task Force a lot longer than I was. People like Alan are daring. I suppose it's like Ken Cloak, who's a friend as well as a colleague, who dare to do stuff. I don't think I've been quite as daring as Alan or Ken, but they're daring because they know that this can be unlocked if the mediator takes some of the heat, and certainly Alan was brave enough to do that. But, of course, 
all every mediator watching will know that you could only do that if you'd built a strong enough relationship with the parties. Not a not a friendship, but enough of a relationship of trust to be able to dare to do that. And that's what Ken Cloak writes about as well. So I think it's about that quality of being available to them and, and mirroring, not in the narrow neuroscientific sense, but mirroring to them what's going on in the room. So sometimes I say to people, look, it seems to me that everyone's getting very tired. Should we take a break? Should I go and order some coffees? And someone will say, look, I actually need a toilet break, but I didn't know how to ask, you know, and it's quite funny. But, you know, you start to feel that something's happening. You've got to name it because they can't. That's what you're there for. If they tell you to be quiet and stay put, nothing's lost. But there will be impasse if you don't name it. So I would say to young mediators, be brave because what you are sensing is probably real and they are too tied up in the content to name the feelings. This is my little granddaughter again. The emotions come before the story. But they're so wrapped up in the story of their rightness or their wrongness or their sadness or their disappointment that they can't, not, they can't name anything else. And I think the other thing is in language terms, I try to slightly underplay the emotion simply because I'm a very emotional person. I'll say to people, look, it seems to me that this made you somewhat, somewhat angry when that happened. And they'll say, somewhat angry? Are you joking? So they can take it up a notch, but I don't. So if I underplay it by a little, then they can grab it and take it where they want to go. Joe, um, thank you so much. I could, as I said, um, just as uh, all our listeners and uh, and myself, I can join them in the choir that we could uh, listen for you, uh, listen to you for hours. Yeah, um, and uh, um, I and I titled our our episode as. Um, on purpose-driven mediation. You are a personification of what purpose-driven mediation is all about. And I would like to thank you on behalf of uh, all our listeners. I would like to thank you for, uh, for your wisdom, uh, for sharing your experience with us. It was great to uh, host you today on our show. Yeah. Uh, to the listeners, you. many thanks for your, uh, for your great comments. Uh, and yes, uh, until next time on the podcast on negotiation. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it.